One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Welcome to another installment of the London Review of Books podcast series, reflecting on the life and work of major poets of the 20th century through the lens of pieces written about them in the LRB archive. My name is Seamus Perry. I teach English literature at the University of Oxford, and I contribute regularly to the LRB. And I'm talking once again to Mark Ford, who's a professor of English at University College London, and also an LRB regular contributor, although he contributes not just essays like me, but also poems. Today, we are discussing the American poet Elizabeth Bishop, who has been much written about in the LRB over the years by a variety of contributors, including Craig Rain, Susanna Clapp, Colm Tabin, Helen Wendler, Michael Hoffman, and indeed, uh, Mark Ford. So Elizabeth Bishop has an interesting career, an interesting reputation. And I thought perhaps one way to start, Mark, would be to think a little bit about that reputation. She is a celebrity within the, the coterie of um, East Coast uh, American poets during her, her her day. She doesn't publish much in her lifetime. And I suppose when she dies, she's a minority taste amongst the cognoscenti. Today, she must be one of the most important American poets of the 20th century. That's absolutely true. When I started reading her in the very late 70s, she was seen pretty much as a kind of a, a sidekick to Robert Lowell, almost a kind of footnote to Robert Lowell. And um, the whirligig of time has brought in its revenges in that Lowell is now often seen as a footnote to Elizabeth Bishop, that the um, meteoric rise in her reputation in the decades since she died in 1979 is a startling testimony, I think, to currents in, in academia that she's um, revered as a, uh, a lesbian poet. Uh, she's seen in some ways as a post-colonial poet, her times in Brazil offers interesting kind of perspectives on empire. And um, she hated being thought of as a woman poet in her lifetime and refused permission to anthologists who uh, asked to include her work in books of or anthologies of women-only poets. But uh, there's a sense in which her her oeuvre stands in, in as a kind of correction to the hubris and grandiosity of the oeuvre of a, of a poet such as uh, Robert Lowell or um, John Berryman, the other, or confessional poets who took themselves very seriously. One of the enchanting things about Bishop is the way she, her poetry doesn't allow us to think that she's taking herself too seriously. In fact, that, that's an illusion. She took her own poetry very, very seriously, too seriously, you might say. She was a perfectionist and an idealist. But that has kept her corpus quite limited, and I or quite sort of. There's about ninety poems, so to speak, that she allowed uh, to be published in her lifetime, and that makes her very approachable, much more approachable than anyone who, who looks at the shelves and sees the collected Lowell and think, "Well, I'll need a lifetime to read that." We thought that one good way into uh, into that lifetime's work would be uh, from a, a quite, quite a famous poem from the very end of her life, a poem called "One Art," in which she. Um, looks back and reflects upon 
those things that have influenced her life and those things that have also influenced her poetry, I suppose. Uh, this is a very striking and I suppose quite a famous poem now. Um, it's a villanelle. Perhaps you could tell us something about that. Could you read us perhaps a few lines from it? The art of losing isn't hard to master. So many things seem filled with the intent to be lost, that their loss is no disaster. Lose something every day, accept the fluster of lost door keys, the hour badly spent. The art of losing isn't hard to master. Then practice losing farther, losing faster, places and names, and where it was you meant to travel. None of these will bring disaster. I lost my mother's watch, and look, my last or next to last of three loved houses went. The art of losing isn't hard to master. Which we pick up on the reference to her mother's watch, mm. because uh, her early losses, which this poem is quite subtly encoding, include not just her mother, but her father too. She gets that by a pun, doesn't she? Then practice losing father, uh, F-A-R-T-H-E-R. But obviously there is father there as well. Her father dies when she's only a few months old in 1911. Uh, and then she moves to Canada because the, the, there's, there's a big kind of Canadian element in her, in her background, isn't there? Uh, and she stays in Nova Scotia with her maternal grandparents for a bit. Um, and, then, and then the mother is also lost to her, but lost to her in a different way. Yes, her mother goes mad. Um, they actually, after um, her father died of Bright's disease, uh, when she was about eight months old, they moved to Boston for a couple of years. And then, as her mother sort of started uh, losing her sanity, they she moved into the family home up in Great Village in Nova Scotia. And, and Bishop um, returns again and again to these early... Um, uh, early years when she was six or seven in poems such as In the Village, uh, sorry, the story In the Village and the poem uh, In the Waiting Room as, as well as One Art. And she used to th think of herself as having about as bad a childhood as you could have and survive it. And, and her um, psychoanalyst complimented her on having survived the horrors that she had survived because, yes, she, she never knew her father at all. Uh, her mother, uh, when she was li living with uh, in Nova Scotia uh, with Bishop would scream as the story in the village dramatises and then eventually she was put into uh, an insane asylum in uh, Nova Scotia when Bishop was six, nearly seven and Bishop never saw her again though her mother died only in 1934. So she lived with this these appalling losses and the sense of homelessness that you get in Bishop's poetry. And, and she was a restless person in, in her adult life. She travels all over the world, never really settles down, what she does a bit in Brazil for 15 years. But uh, the peripatetic nature of her of her life reflects, I think, the, these, this early trauma. And she's an only child, isn't she? She is. And she has aunts who uh, look after her and grandparents. And they all appear in the poetry that though Bishop isn't a confessional poet. A lot of her family background does make its way into um, her poetry. And um, there was very much a division between her mother's and her father's families that um, her father's side was much richer. Um, his father, in fact, designed um, the Boston Public Library and the Museum of Fine Arts in Boston. He was a con constructed those. Uh, and they were very wealthy, whereas her mother's side was, was much poorer So, uh, and was from a very rural community. So she did in the end inherit you know, a trust fund, which enabled her not to work 
for money for for her life. So she was somebody who didn't have to worry about you know, getting an income. Um, but th- no one would wish on anyone the the sorts of um, losses which uh, she experienced in those early years because she was then taken by her paternal gra- grandparents back to Worcester, which back she to hated. Massachusetts. Yeah. yeah. That's a a great um, thing that she writes to an early biographer uh, in which she says, although I think that I have a prize unhappy childhood, which she puts in inverted commas, almost good enough for the textbooks, please don't think I dote on it. (laughs) Uh, Something very uh, steely, isn't there, about about her attitude towards her own unhappiness. Yes, and even that provisional, I think, is, is uh, I think I have a prize unhappy childhood. I mean, uh, she did, (laughs) but there's, there's a sense in which her own attitude to to this was that was that you should find a way of well let's use her own phrase awful but cheerful mm. that things were awful but you should somehow uh, mat- attempt to enjoy life as much as you could or extract as much pleasure or fun or delight uh, from life as you could um, bishop also attributed her lifelong lifelong alcoholism uh, and that n- never got better she she even in her 60s she was falling over and breaking her shoulder after uh, these appalling uh, binges that she would go on Mm. um, and she would spend months in alcoholic clinics. She also attributed that to the insecurities and anxieties of of those desperate early years. So we have a sort of dialectic, don't we, between the disorderliness of her life and and in some sorts of ways the emotional shambles that she inherited from this uh, extraordinarily disrupted and dysfunctional childhood in one way or another with her... um, her artistic commitment to perfectibility, to perfectionism. And I mentioned that one art is a villanelle, which is a very um, um, precise and demanding kind of poetic form. Could you say something about her her interest in form? She's not a poet who writes all her poems in recognisable poetic stanzaic f- forms, though some of them are. She's not a poet who writes everything in rhyme, though some of the poems do rhyme or, or, or purposefully don't rhyme in, in brilliant ways. Uh, what do you think of her as a thinker about form within poetry? I think her use of form is... Um, there is something more provisional or happened upon in it than there might be with other poets who say, I'm going to write a villanelle and I'll set out to write a villanelle. We actually can follow the evolution of one art through 26 drafts in which it is not going to be a villanelle for quite a lot of them. Uh, it, it takes a, a while, uh, takes quite a lot of poetic compositional effort before Bishop discovers that what she's after is a villanelle. So that the material kind of generates the form in a way um, which is... Um, extremely effective. It was the only villanelle she wrote. She didn't make a habit of writing them and she was delighted to have written one um, and very pleased with it. So she does experiment with some of the forms which the modernists made use of, like the Sestina, and she writes some of the most brilliant Sestinas. Uh, Pound and Auden had both written Sestinas, but hers, like A Miracle for Breakfast, or one called Sestina, which is about her grandmother uh, and those early years again, Make use of that of, of the form in a, in a particularly a bishopy way. It's hard to describe. In a sense, her use of form is some in some ways unprofessional, if if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Uh, that you feel she needs the form for this particular poem, but she's not in a sort of uh, in a deliberate way looking to explore the form except for what it enables her to communicate. And I think that's what connects with readers. You always feel that Bishop, however ditzy or wayward or eccentric uh, she may seem to be, that there's always an urge to communicate something. And often that something 
is something awful. Um, she might say it in a cheerful way. Uh, she once said that there was an element, I think this is from the essay on Marianne Moore, an element of mortal panic and fear underlying all works of art. And I think what readers respond to, even these very formally controlled poems, is that sense of panic or fear. Thanks for listening to this extract from Series 1 of Modernish Poets. To listen to the full series and to all our other close reading series, sign up at lrb.me forward slash close readings or click on the link below. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.